Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be covering 1 Nephi chapters 6 through 10. Now we're really going to be focusing on 8, 1 Nephi 8, which is the vision of the tree of life. But I want to do a brief overview of chapter 6 and 7. In chapter 6, Nephi basically says, listen, the fullness of mine intent is to persuade people to come unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob and be saved. He basically tells us his whole goal is to bring us to Jesus. And 1 Nephi 6 is only six verses, but I think it's important that we read Nephi's words and understand that's his goal. Now, the seventh chapter is Nephi recounting after they left and they were in the wilderness and they have the plates, the Lord tells Lehi, it is not good that a man should be alone. They need to take the daughters of Ishmael to wife. You see, Lehi has sons. Ishmael, who lives in Jerusalem, he has daughters. And so what happens is the Lord inspires Lehi to send his sons back to the city of Jerusalem and to invite Ishmael and his family to come with them on their journey. Now, in the story of where Nephi gets the plates, he takes Zoram, who is Laban's servant, with him into the wilderness, and that's discussed in Nephi's account. Now, in chapter 7 of 1 Nephi, verse 6, there's an interesting story here that really helps us see how the Lord had Zoram in mind as well. Look in verse 6. It reads, It came to pass that as we journeyed in the wilderness, behold, Laman and Lemuel and two of the daughters of Ishmael and two of the sons of Ishmael and their families did rebel against us. And so we can kind of see how Ishmael has two daughters that their attitude coincides with that of Laman and Lemuel. And I might believe that those two daughters end up marrying Laman and Lemuel. And notice what it says, that they rebelled against us, yea, and against me, Nephi and Sam, and their father Ishmael, and his wife, and his three other daughters. I find that very interesting. You see, Nephi and Sam had to get married. There's two of the three daughters. But who's the third daughter for? In my opinion, that is a woman that will be married to Zoram. And it kind of shows me as a reader that Zoram sided with Nephi in this division that's happening early on in the account of the journey out of Jerusalem. You see, there's some tension in the family. Some want to follow Lehi and some don't. But it shows me in verse 6 that the Lord knew Zoram and knew that Zoram needed to be married as well, and the Lord had him in mind as well. You see, one of the things I read when I read the Book of Mormon is this grand picture of how the Lord can see all things and is working to participate in the lives of the children of men. But really in this podcast, the main focus is the vision of the tree of life in 1 Nephi chapter 8. So 1 Nephi 8 is Lehi's account of the vision of the tree of life. Now, in chapter 11, Nephi is going to be given a vision of the tree of life with an explanation. And so there's a lot more detail in chapter 11, but in this chapter, this is Lehi's account. And so, Bryce, what, in your opinion, is the purpose of this vision? I love that we start with Lehi's version, because Lehi's is very symbolic. Lehi just sees a tree, he sees a river, he sees a rod, he sees a building. And then Nephi says, look, I, I want to know, I want to understand. And the Lord doesn't come and show Nephi a tree, a rod, a building, and, and all the same images. He tells Nephi some stories. 
as if to say, okay, let me tell you this story and see if you can find the tree in this story. And so if we really understand what's going on, we practice with Nephi to say, can you find the tree in the story of Jews and Jerusalem and Jesus? If you can find the tree and the rod and the building and the mist, let's practice again. So then it's Nephi-Lehi's day. It's Lamanites and Nephites. And so can you find the tree, the rod, the building in the story of the Book of Mormon? And then we practice again with the Gentiles. Now, I think the reason this is significant is because what the next step would be is, can you find the tree, the rod, the building in the rest of the Book of Mormon? This is a significant key to unlock the rest of the Book of Mormon. Can you see the tree in the war chapters? Can you find the rod in the war chapters? Can you find the building in the war chapters? This story is repeated everywhere. Wouldn't you say that this vision is going to be the overlay where Nephi is going to do all his work? Where he's all really, of his, yeah. Everything to, is through this lens, to right? To unlock Nephi's writings, you have to have the lens of the tree of life vision. You have to see that he's trying to prevent the blindnesses yeah. that he's identified in the stories he was given. And so here I am, a parent, and I need to identify what is the building in the lives of my children? What is the rod? How do my children taste the fruit of the tree today? What is the building that pulls them off of the straight and narrow? What is the mist of darkness today that blinds our eyes and hardens our hearts? So if we can practice this and get really good at these symbols— it will unlock so much of the rest of the scriptures. For so it's us. not just Nephi, it's the whole Book of Mormon. It's the whole Book of Mormon. And I would say, by extension, it's the restoration, because the restoration is built on a foundation of the Book of Mormon. So this is such a key for unlocking the scriptures. So with just starting off, Lehi's kind of worried. He, he comes out of this dream experience and he's stressed out. He's worried about his sons. Well, notice that Lehi has already interpreted them. He already knows what they mean because he's simply saying, my sons are not partaking of the tree of life. Yeah. And he probably knows why. What is it that blinds their eyes and hardens their hearts? And so he got the message. And so we need to make sure that we get the message. He starts by saying, look, I have a message. And man, is it hammered home to me? And because of the message, I worry about you, Laman and Lemuel, and I have great happiness in you, Nephi, because I know what is going on in your life. And I love the beginning of the dream because he starts in a lone and dreary wilderness, or a lone and dreary waste is what he calls us, which is life without the tree. Yeah. Life without the tree is lone and dreary. Dreary waste, that's verse 7. Yeah. But let's tackle the images. Let's just, Mike's a master at imagery here, and I love to establish the application of the images. So I would break this dream down into five major images. So let's tackle the five images one by one, and we'll just kind of develop them. And what is it that, what role do they play in this? So let's start with the tree. Verse 10 is critical. Lehi sees a tree whose purpose is to make you happy. But then he sees fruit on the tree, and between Nephi Lehi and Alma, there are eight words in the Book of Mormon used to describe the fruit of the tree of life. And you're going to want to highlight these, starting in verse 11, right? Yep. White, joyous, desirable, pure, beautiful, great. I'm missing one. Bunch of superlatives. We'll let the readers find them, but if you'll go to 1 Nephi 8... 1 Nephi 11, 12, 13, and 15. There's one at the very end of chapter 15. And then Alma 32, at the end where he's talking about the tree. 
the Lord is trying to say, there is something that will make you more happy than anything else. You might not believe that. You might be fooled by an imitation, which is the building, and that's coming up. But the thing that will make you happier than anything else is the love of God. It is more sweet than anything else. It will bring you more joy. It's more desirable. It's more pure. No one will love you like God will love you. It will make you feel more beautiful. People are on a quest for beauty, and beauty companies are constantly selling products that make people feel beautiful. And I think what the Book of Mormon is trying to say is nothing will make you feel more beautiful than to feel the love of God in your life. It is the greatest of all. So the tree is the love of God. Now, let me clarify. We sometimes portray the tree of life as it's the celestial kingdom, and we're journeying through mortality to get to the celestial kingdom, and that is wrong. We can partake of the tree of life every single day. We should partake of the tree of life every day. This is not a life journey. This is more of a state of mind that we're supposed to be partaking of the tree and not fooled by an imitation. Yeah, even though it's ongoing, yet there are things that keep us from it. And so that really brings it to pass the building. Before we get to the building, I do want to say this is temple imagery, in my opinion. I think what we see here is this entire vision, all of First Nephi 8 and 11, has to do with coming into the presence of God. And so the tree is a really big deal that's going to represent coming into God's presence. These symbols don't just mean one thing. They mean a bunch of things. Yeah. We are going to talk in this podcast, so keep listening, about other ways to read about the tree. Because anciently, in Lehi's day, this tree represented a lot of things. So it is the love of God, but then what does that mean, and how can we parse that out? But there are a couple things keeping people from seeing the love of God. In 1 Nephi 8, I don't think it says that it is the love of God. That's later when the angel breaks it down. But Lehi gets it. He knows what this is. So what's keeping everybody from it? Okay, there's two things. Let's focus on the building. Now, Nephi's going to tell us that the building represents the pride and the vanity of the world. And I think what he's trying to say here is the building are all the things we pridefully and vainly think will make us happy. It's the imitation. The building is the imitation tree. It's the fake tree. It's everything that we think will make us happy. I think people turn to alcohol when they really want to turn to God. It's God that comforts our souls and brings us peace in hard times. But people often are fooled by an imitation, but that's not a true happiness. And that's the test. Now, how many times, Mike, in the scriptures have we seen a real thing in an imitation? That seems to be one of the major themes that flows throughout the scriptures. Are you fooled by an imitation? Like in our Revelation podcast, we talk about the dualism. So many times right? there was the woman clothed in the sun and then the harlot and then her wine and that woman's wine. And it's, are you fooled by the imitation? And so Lehi's dream talks about a true source of happiness and then a fake form of happiness that all these people in the building are trying to make you think that they're happy. They are not happy. But the con here is will you fall for the imitation? Will you think that something else is going to make you happy instead of the tree? It is interesting. Throughout the Book of Mormon, there's always a replacement. There's always a second message to try to tear you away. And, you know, the adversary is so brilliant at this. Even in the first vision, you know, before the pillar of light, there was the darkness. There's the Captain Moroni's, but then there's the dissenters. And I think we live in this world today, don't we, Bryce, of these competing voices? We do. So that's the building in a nutshell. I mean, there's so much we can do on the building. Oh my gosh, so much. But on the mist, what do you do with this mist? The mist 
is what blinds our eyes and hardens our hearts. Notice that the mist affects all the other images. The mist hides the love of God. There are so many things in this world that blind our eyes and harden our hearts to the fact that God loves us. I hear from a lot of people that if God loved me, he wouldn't let me suffer. Suffering is a mist. Suffering hides the love of God. Some people cannot see that God loves us because they're blinded by a mist and it hardens their hearts. But the mist hides everything else. The mist hides the rod, the source of help that would guide us to the tree. The mist hides the foundation of the building. The fact that the building is going to crumble and fall, that it's a fake, vain happiness, not a real one. The mist hides the river. And so the mist is everything that blinds our eyes and hardens our hearts. So we've got the mist, we've got the building, those are distractions. We've got the tree, which is coming in God's presence, his love. You've got a couple other symbols. You've got the rod. Let's do the river. And the, okay, the, the river, river, the river. So no one really makes it to the building. It's kind of a fake idea that you can, crawl, you know, if you let go of the rod, you can go join the fancy people in their nice cars in the building because you can't. Between the people and the building is a river. And Nephi, Lehi will later describe that they drowned in the river. Lehi is so caught up in the vision that he doesn't notice the filthiness of the river, which means why is water filthy? It's because it's running very fast. And fast running water can suck you in so quickly. There's a tragic story coming out of Arizona where um, a family coming home from Thanksgiving drove through a wash and their car was swept away. And he thought, there's no way. He had a big SUV. There's no way. But tragically, the water swept them away. And that's so descriptive of this river. It is fast moving water that can suck you in and sweep you away. So your best bet is to hold on to the rod. So we've got the river that's the consequences of our actions. That, that's the river of hell that we drowned in. If you're fooled by an imitation, odds are you're going to end up in the depths of hell and suffering. But luckily, Mike, the Lord gives us help. There's help to get us through the mist, to make sure we're not deceived by the building, and to keep us out of the river. And that's the rod. And I love the rod. There are three descriptions in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 19, has three purposes of the rod. And the sad thing is you can't draw all three of these at the same time. So you kind of have to pick and choose. And most artists usually pick the latter two, not the first one. But if you'll look at verse 19, why would you put a rod right next to a raging river? Why don't I read it read to kind of get a 19, picture? So, so let's read this. I beheld a rod of iron, and it extended along the bank of the river, and it led to the tree by which I stood. So this rod was along the bank. In other words, maybe a protection a from barrier. falling yeah. into the mess. So one, it is going to be a rail. There's no question it will be a rail that leads us to the tree. But in verse 19, why would you put a rod of iron in front of a dangerous river? Like a barrier. It's a barrier. God gives us a rod that will keep us out of the river. If you hold to the rod, you will never fall. Now, let's flip quickly to verse 15, chapter 15. 
if you look at verse 23, Laman and Lemuel say, what meaneth the rod of iron? And Nephi's going to answer it. So chapter 15, verse 23 is the question, what meaneth the rod? And then verse 24. Mike, would you read verse 24? Now listen, here's the promise. If you will hold to the rod, you cannot, notice the word will be cannot, not will not, you cannot fall into the river. I said unto them that it was the word of God, meaning, you know, what is the rod? And whoso would hearken unto the word of God and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish. Neither could the temptations and fiery darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness to lead them away to destruction. So it seems like a big time protection there. Yeah. And so the Lord in very simple terms is saying, I can keep you out of the river. President Benson said one of the greatest blessings of the reading of the Book of Mormon is that a power flows into your life the moment you begin a serious study of the book. Power to avoid deception. Now that's the building, but it will keep you out of the river. And even if we fall, even if we transgress, if we continually have the Word of God in our life, it's like this constant check. I like to think of the sacrament like this constant reminder. It's a check on my pride, and it's a check on my vain ambitions or my whatever it is that I'm struggling with, right? So it's a barrier, but the rod does more than that. And then verse 20 is the second one. Chapter 8, verse 20, it will lead you to the tree, meaning... It will lead you away from the building. In other words, the scriptures will help you identify the deception. Okay, and it will take you into the presence of God. It will keep you from being deceived. The scriptures will keep you from being deceived. At the very end of uh, Joseph Smith history, we get this little excerpt from Oliver Cowdery. He wrote some letters about Joseph's experience. And I, I love this paragraph, the promise of the scripture. So I'm reading from the very center of the last paragraph that isn't numbered in Joseph Smith history. At the end of Joseph Smith history, you'll find a, a Oliver Cowdery's excerpts. And this is the last paragraph. He says, man may deceive his fellow man. Deception may follow deception, and the children of the wicked one may have power to seduce the foolish and untaught, till naught but fiction feeds the fancy, and the fruit of falsehood carries it in its current, the giddy to the grave. And that's the world we live in, the world of deception. But one touch with the finger of his love, yes, one ray of glory from the upper word, one word from the mouth of the Savior from the bosom of eternity, strikes it, and I have to assume the antecedent to it is the deception. One word from the mouth of the Savior strikes it all into insignificance and blots it forever from the mind. The scriptures will help us from being deceived. We will not fall for an imitation happiness if we are holding on to the rod. I like that. And then the last one is it talks about keeping us on the path. I want to point out that there are three paths in Lehi's dream. There are three paths that lead off the tree. What's the first road that it mentions coming off the straight and narrow? You got forbidden paths in verse 28. So sin. So the scriptures will keep us from the path of sin. But then verse 32 is an interesting one. The people who let go of the rod fall into strange roads. And I don't know exactly what this means, but my interpretation of this is strange roads are weird and unusual. And why do people wear weird, unusual clothes? And why do they say weird, unusual things? It's because they need attention. They need other people to acknowledge their value and notice them. 
They need likes on social media. They need to be recognized and appreciated. Well, what will keep you from needing other people to acknowledge you? Because in this world, we're all in need. So we're either going to fill our cup with the love of God, or we're going to go down these strange paths. There it is. So parents, if you want to keep your children off the strange road, get them to hold on to the scriptures. Now, the third one is in actually chapter 12, 1 Nephi 12, verse 17. Nephi mentions another alternate path. He calls it the broad road. Now, why do we make wide, broad roads? So lots of cars can go down them. This is the road of, I want to be like everybody else. I can't be different. I have to do what everyone else is doing. I have to say what they say. I have to wear what they wear. I have to do what they do. I, can't, I have to be like everyone else. Now, guess what will keep you off of that road? The Word. The Word of God. So we've got strange roads, broad roads, and and forbidden roads. Those are the three roads that these visions talk about. And yet, if you hold to the rod, you will stay off the path of sin, the path of I need to be like everyone else, and the path of I need everyone to notice me. That's good. Let me just, for my last piece, let me point out that there are four groups of people. Four times in Lehi's dream does he say, I saw another group or another multitude. He describes four groups of people. And I want you to pay attention to the function of the rod, the role the rod plays in each of these groups of people. Now, group four is verse 31. They are the ones that are feeling their way towards the building. These are the people that go straight to the building. No rod, no path, no tree of life, no love of God, no scriptures. They just go straight to the building. And I doubt anyone listening to this podcast is a number four, because you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you are a four. You would go straight to the building. So then we get the threes. I'm going to go in reverse order. I like to do this in reverse order because I want the best to be number one. Group number three that I want to describe are verses 21, 22, and 23. Now, let me just read it. Verse 21, so I saw numberless concourses of people, many of whom were pressing forward that they might obtain the path which led to the tree. And it came to pass that they did come forth and commence in the path. Now, the path, we got to go to 2 Nephi chapter 31. Nephi describes a gate that allows you to enter the path. And the gate is repentance and baptism. So if these people commenced in the path, what does it mean they did? They're following Jesus. They joined the church. They repented and they were baptized. These are baptized members of the church. But notice what is not mentioned in verses 21 or 22. They never grabbed the rod. The group three are members of the church who never grab the rod. They never make the scriptures or the word of God a serious study in their life. The problem is they are susceptible in verse 23 to the mist. Lehi is here trying to suggest that membership in the church is not sufficient to keep getting you to the tree. It's the word of God. You've got to grab the rod because group three never grabs the rod and they never make it to the tree. And then the twos is verses 24 and 25. Now, these ones come forth, they're pressing forward, they grab hold of the end of the rod, and they make it to the tree, but they don't stay at the tree. 
So the twos grab the rod, make it to the tree, but don't stay. So clearly there's something they do good that the threes don't do, and that is they grab the rod. It's interesting to me that the rod and the tree are connected. Those who grab the rod make it to the tree. Those who don't grab the rod don't make it to the tree. But the twos do something bad that the ones are not going to do. So in verse 24, they cling. Now, David A. Bednar said the following, Even with faith, commitment, and the Word of God, this group was lost, perhaps because they only periodically read or studied or searched the Scriptures. Clinging to the rod of iron suggests to me only occasional bursts of study or irregular dipping rather than consistent, ongoing immersion in the Word of God. So these are the hot and colds. The twos are the people that get all excited about studying the Scriptures because come follow me is brand new, and here we are, everyone's emphasizing the Book of Mormon, so I'm going to read the Book of Mormon, and I'm really hot, but then I'm going to get cold, and I'm going to forget. And then I'm going to get hot again, and then I'm going to get cold. And I think most of us can relate with that a little bit, maybe in different aspects of our life. Maybe, you know, it's January right now. How many people are just doing gym memberships, or have you ever had the experience where you're you know, one of your sons or daughters is getting baptized and you're like, we're really going to step it up this time. And so I think that does speak to our human condition, but it's also an invitation. I think it's an invitation to... To be aware that we're doing it. And maybe to be more steady. Yeah. Hey, I am a clinger. I get hot and cold. Well, notice the hot and cold clingers get to the tree. The problem is in verse 26, they're susceptible to the building. They get fooled by an imitation. They don't hold the rod well enough to know the difference between the deception and the real. Now the ones, verse 30, are the ones, and I love the description. These are the ones that make it to the tree and stay at the tree. So here's verse 30. To be in short in writing, behold, he saw other multitudes pressing forward, and they came and caught hold of the end of the iron rod, and they did press their way forward, continually holding fast to the iron rod until they came forth and fell down and partook of the fruit of the tree. And I just, I was so impressed recently as I was rereading this, I found verse 34 to be very significant. Well, I I think we need to read verse 33. And great was the multitude that did enter into that strange building. And after they did enter into the strange building, they did point the finger of scorn at me and those that were partaking of the fruit also, but we heeded them not. And then this telling verse, verse 34, these are the words of my father, for as many as heeded them had fallen away. If you care what people think, if you care what people have and you don't have, if you give heed to the people in the building, you fall away. Hold to the rod. It will keep you out of the river. It will keep you on the path, and it will lead you to the tree away from the building. You won't be deceived. But grab that rod and make it a continual study, something that you do every day throughout your whole life. You'll get there. You'll taste that fruit day in and day out. The memory of the fruit is not sufficient. You've got to continually partake of it. And the best way to partake of the fruit is through the rod. Whether that's personal revelation to you or words of the prophet or in the temple or in the scriptures, it's the word of God and his love 
that will get us through the dark times and the darkness. So I love how all those images come together, Mike. It's pretty relevant today with all the messages out there. I think that the adversary is doing a really good job as as far as trying to get us distracted and getting us off the path. And yet, I like that we live in this age. We live in an age where you can learn so much and there's so much potential, but it just seems like the building is louder than ever. This is temple imagery, in my opinion. I think what we see here is this entire vision, all of 1 Nephi 8 and 11, has to do with coming into the presence of God. And so let's go ahead and look at the story as told in 1 Nephi 8, this vision that Lehi has as a temple experience. I find it very interesting that right there in the very first verse, we get this interesting, you know, almost like it doesn't belong. There's this verse that says, it came to pass that we had gathered together all manner of seeds of every kind, both grain of every kind, and also the seeds of fruit of every kind. And it came to pass that while my father tarried in the wilderness, he spake unto us saying, behold, I have dreamed a dream. And you look at this and you're like, what in the heck does that have to do with anything? Like, why are we talking about seeds? And so just really quick, some quick references on wheat and seeds. You've got Luke 22, 31 where Jesus says, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. You've got the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, 40. You've got Ruth and Boaz on the threshing floor in the book of Ruth. You've got the whole idea that the temple itself was purchased from this Jebusite in 2 Samuel 24, 18 through 25. It was purchased. The foundation stone of the temple was a threshing Floor. This is where we separate the wheat from the chaff. This idea of gathering seeds is temple. We become holy seeds. And what is Jesus? He is the seed of God. So temple, threshing floor, seeds, everything to me is just right there. In my opinion, I think what's going on here is we have the beginning of this, a temple vision. Well, look at all the images that you have right at the beginning of the text. And if you've been to the temple, this will really resonate. If you haven't been to the temple, you can read some really good books about temple symbolism and uh, temple liturgy. I've referenced LeGrand Baker, and another author that's really good. She's not Latter-day Saint, but her name is Dinah Dye. She's written a couple really um, excellent books on temple symbolism that are kind of short. And this will really help. Uh, people that maybe if you haven't been to the temple, just get a flavor for what's going on in ancient Israel when it comes to the temple. So Dinah Dye wrote a book called The Temple Revealed in Creation and another one, The Temple Revealed in the Garden. And so what's going on here? Well, look at the symbols. You've got the presence of God or the tree. You've got sacred waters, and it's kind of depicted in a couple ways, negatively and positively. You've got a rod or a staff. Uh, The question is, what about the throne? Is there a throne in this text? Are there glorious beings? Is there a rock? So my contention is that that 1 Nephi 8 has everything to do with the temple, and the tree is going to be a representation of God. It's the love of God. We'll see this later. But it also, there are many depictions and ways to look at the tree as well. To me, the whole center of this is the tree, and there's the tree represents so many things. And so, yes, it's the love of God, but I want to share this notion that the tree has multiple conceptions, that there's lots of ways to look at it. So to me, there's at least 10 things that the tree can be. It can be a symbol of life or fertility. Uh, the tree can represent the cosmos. The tree can represent coming into God's presence or the center of the world. There's a lot of cultures that look at this sacred tree as something that's the center of the navel of the earth. It could represent the bond between men and gods, or it can be a symbol of resurrection as well. 
that can also represent Heavenly Mother. And we'll see this uh, later in in, uh, 1 Nephi 11. A really good article to read is by uh, Daniel Peterson called uh, Nephi and his Asherah. There was a belief in in this uh, sacred mother, and she was symbolized as a tree. A lot of this is translated out of the Old Testament in our King James versions, but it is there in the Hebrew. The tree can represent God. The tree can also represent the king. And so there's a lot of really good literature on this. Uh, a really short paper called The King and the Tree of Life in Ancient Near Eastern Religion by Weidengren really describes this, this idea that the king can be a, a symbol for the tree. If you've seen Tolkien's movies, The Lord of the Rings, uh, the great king in The Lord of the Rings has a tree on his breastplate and on his shield. And so think about this idea of a tree and sacred growth. Think about Jesus Uh, The person with the image of the tree could represent the gardener. And so in ancient Near Eastern literature, the tree represented the gardener. And think about who Jesus is mistaken for in the gospel narratives. He's the gardener there. And so the tree is a really big deal that's going to represent coming into God's presence. And if you've ever read Genesis 2, Eden is a prototypical temple. And so in Genesis 2, 10 through 14, you have these rivers that flow out of Eden and they split into four heads. You see the same kind of image in Ezekiel 47. You see it in Revelation 22, 1, where waters grow out of the tree of life and the tree of life bears 12 different fruits in Revelation 22. And so go back and listen to our Revelation podcast where we talk about the tree. The tree is going to represent God and all those things that are holy. Now, I want it's hard to do on a podcast, but I want you to think about this, and we'll post this in the show notes, but think about a temple, especially, uh, specifically, I want to refer to an ancient Israelite temple. In the holy place, or the holy of holies, as it reads in our King James, you have the uh, the inner sanctuary where the ark is. That's going to represent God's presence, and it's a perfect cube. And then before that, you have the holy place, the hakal, Um, that literally means the big house. And then you have the porch before the Hakal, that's the Ulam. And that is, uh, in essence, the temple, three divisions there. Outside of the porch, you have the courtyard, the inner court. And that courtyard is where you have the altar of sacrifice and the labor. You're ascending into God's presence. And so the tree is going to represent coming into the presence of God. So working back from 1 Nephi 8, verse 4, it says that he thought he was in a dark and dreary wilderness or a dark and dreary waste in verse 7. If we're looking at this as a temple text, that's going to be the courtyard, the courtyard outside of the temple. And this is very foreign to us modern readers, but that courtyard is going to represent the sea, which represents chaos. Josephus even said this, at the outer court where the Gentiles Uh, where it was called the sea. This outer courtyard represents chaos, and the temple is sitting amidst the ocean. And so you want to leave the chaos, you leave the sea, and you come to God. So as we get closer to the tree, we approach him. And so that's the first symbol that we see there is this chaos. The next image are the rivers. Genesis 2.10, Ezekiel 47, Zechariah 14, living waters that are coming out of the tree. The spring of Gahan was said to be conceptually coming up underneath the temple and that these waters were pure and holy and they come from divinity and they water the land. 
the next temple concept. So we've got the the sea or the chaos, the dreary waste. We've got the rivers. Another one is the rod. Bryce talked about how it represents a barrier, but it also represents the king. According to Psalm 2 verse 9, the Lord defeats the enemies of the king with an iron rod. In Psalms 23, the rod becomes instead an instrument of comfort. For example, in Psalm 23, verse 4, it says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And so we're going through the valley of the shadow of death. We're leaving the sea and we're coming into God's presence, and the rod's going to be a comfort. If you look in verse 5 of Psalm 23, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. We're coming into the presence of God. And so in Psalm 23, the rod is a comfort. The rod is a symbol and an extension of the king. And so I want you to think about dream imagery. Imagine that the tree representing the king, representing Christ, also represents a throne. And so when the king extends his rod to you, the rod is an extension of the king. In a lot of ancient Near Eastern literature, the idea was that the king held the rod. The rod was a piece of the tree. And so think of that as the rod is a symbol of the tree. It's a symbol of an extension of life, a symbol of the extension of the king. And so as we proceed forward, we're coming into God's presence. The throne's a little bit tricky because there's not a throne in 1 Nephi 8, but in a lot of ancient Near Eastern literature, especially in um, Egyptian literature, the child or the, the God who is a child on the lap of the mother is a symbol for the throne, specifically as it refers to Isis. Isis was a goddess who has the divine child on her lap and even on her head is a throne. And so we'll get to that when we get to chapter 11, but I want to just submit to you that that idea of a throne is in there. So we're coming to the throne of the heavenly king and the heavens are going to be opened. Okay, let's talk about some of the words. The first room in the temple is called the Ulam, and that is outside of the temple itself of the main building, but it's right where those two pillars are, and we'll post that in the show notes so you can see it. And if you read First Nephi 8, verse 9, and verse 19 and 20, it says this, It came to pass after I prayed to the Lord, I beheld a large and spacious field, and I beheld a rod of iron, and it extended along the bank of the river and led to the tree by which I stood. And I also beheld a straight and narrow path, which came along by the rod of iron, even to the tree by which I stood. And it also led by the head of the fountain unto a large and spacious field, as if it had been a world. How can this field in the dream be related to the ulam of the temple? Now, there are several ways to look at this. But first, look at the word. The word ulam is very similar to the word olam. And there's a lot of wordplay going on. But what I think is happening here is Lehi is pointing out that the field is as big as the world, and he's punning on the word for porch. Ulam is porch, Olam is world. Also, if you're familiar with the literature of the Bible, a lot of times the field is the world. If you think about the parables involving seeds, the field represents the world. And so he sees this field, which represents the world. And as he's coming closer to the tree, he's punning with that word for world. It's also a word that's used for time. God is the God of all time, of all the world. That word 
olam is used all over the place, like 500 times in the Bible. The everlasting nature of time. In Isaiah 63, 9, the prophet reminds his readers that the Lord carried his people, quote, all the days of old. Of old is olam. In other words, God is the God of all time. He's the God of all the world or all the large and spacious field. What does he see in the world? He sees lots of people. I think this is an association with the temple, which brings us to the next word, and the word is hakal. That's the word that's used to describe the temple. The main structure of the temple is called the hakal. It comes from a Sumerian term, egal, which literally means big house or great house. Now, if you look in verse 26 and 27, it talks about a big house. But in this case, the house is cast in a negative light. It's called a great and spacious building high above the earth, and the people in it are wearing all kinds of dress that is exceedingly fine. What I think is happening here is that Nephi, or excuse me, Lehi is punning on the temple, and he's trying to say to his ancient listeners, to his family, that the people running the temple in his day are apostates. And so what he's saying is they're not authorized to work in the temple. So this word for great and spacious house, this word, the word is hakal. And so he's saying as he's coming, he, meaning Lehi, coming as an authorized representative into the presence of God, the people, the stewards of the temple at that time of Lehi's day are out of bounds, that they're not doing good things. And he keeps using this phrase, exceedingly fine clothing, which is the phrase that is used to describe the temple priest's clothing, that they wear exceedingly fine clothing. That's the phrase that's used. If you read Exodus 28, it's all over the place. The word is sheish, and that is to describe the clothing that the priests are wearing, exceedingly fine clothing. And so these distinctions are are important. If we understand a little bit about language, a little bit about the structure of the temple, you can see that Lehi, he's authorized to come into God's presence, and he's showing us how to do it. And he's also pointing his finger at the religious leaders of his day, and he's saying, these guys are not authorized. And then finally, the final room in the temple is the Debir, and that is the Holy of Holies. And Debir is the place of speaking. And the word for spake is Debar. And it's where you get the oracles of God. It's where you have the revelation of meeting God and hearing his voice. Coming into God's presence at the temple is coming into the Debir, hearing the voice of God. And so if you think about the rod as the extension of the word of God, the word of God is held in the hand of the king and it's extended all the way out to all that will come on the path to come into God's presence. And so is the tree the representation of the Lord? Yes. Is it a representation of the king? Absolutely. Jesus is king. Will the tree make us happy? The word for happy is ashar. And what's interesting is in the time of Lehi, there were many people that believed in Yahweh that believed that there was a heavenly mother being, and her name was Asherah, and she was personified as a tree. And so to come to the tree could also represent coming into this mother goddess that is very interesting because later in First Nephi 11, when Nephi wants to know, well, what is the meaning of of the tree. What is this tree? Notice what happens. In First Nephi 11, verse 8, it says, It came to pass the Spirit said unto me, Look, 
And I looked and I beheld a tree and it was like the tree which my father had seen and the beauty thereof was far beyond, yea, exceeding the all beauty and the whiteness thereof did exceed the whiteness of the driven snow. And it came to pass that I had seen the tree. I said to the spirit, I behold that thou hast shown unto me a tree which is precious above all. And he said, what do you want to know? What do you desire? And he says, I want to know the interpretation thereof. That's verse 11. So skip down to verse 12. It came to pass that he said to me, look. And I looked as if to look upon him. And I saw him not for he had gone from before my presence. And it came to pass that I looked and I beheld the great city of Jerusalem and also other cities. And I beheld the city of Nazareth. And in the city of Nazareth, I beheld a virgin and she was exceedingly fair and white. So he's presented with the image of Mary when he asks for the interpretation of the tree. Now, I'm not saying that Mary's the tree, and I'm not certainly not saying that she's Heavenly Mother, but she's a great symbol, a great metaphor for this mother tree in ancient Near Eastern texts. If you went to the ancient Near East and you dug all around up and down Israel, you would find that there was a lot of archaeological evidence that these people believed in this being. Raphael Patai uh, wrote a really good book about this called The Hebrew Goddess. So did another author named uh, William Deaver. He wrote a book called Did God Have a Wife? And there's just clear evidence that this was a belief in Lehi's day. And so when, when this vision is happening, could this tree represent coming into the family of God, coming into um, a heavenly mother? I think that's a certainly a, a good reading, a, a way to look at the text. And then we see roots of Asherah through the text when we see words like happy and beauty and the, these kinds of words. It's a word that's translated out of the Old Testament. It's usually translated as grove, but it's in there. It's in there about 40 times in the Old Testament. We're coming into the presence of God. Are these rivers all around? Are they all bad? I think that you know there's a lot of ways to look at this, but if you look in First Nephi 8, there's a fountain and there's a river and there's some clean water and there's some dirty water. But overarching all of this, there's basically two messages from a temple perspective. And one of the messages is, if you want to come into God's presence, you've got to grab the rod and we're ascending into his presence. And the other temple message, I think, that Lehi's leaving us, it's an attack on the Jewish priesthood of his day. He's portraying the Hakal, the big house, in a negative light. And so I just want to bear testimony of that, that this is multi-layered. And there, once again, there's no way Joseph Smith's writing this stuff. This is heavy in understanding the Deuteronomistic reforms that I've talked about before. It's heavy in understanding the nature of God. And it's so good in explaining simply, like Bryce was talking about, hey, here's the symbols and here's what they mean. But they're also intricate and detailed enough that if you want to geek out on, okay, what did a 7th century Jew see? This is what's going on. And so I just bear my testimony of the truthfulness of this book, that it is what it claims to be, and that Lehi is awesome. So with that, we thank you for listening. If you like this video, be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, go check out our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. On that channel, Bryce and I have been working on some new video content. These new videos are in addition to the regular podcasts that Bryce and I do together and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. And we'll leave a link in the description. Once again, thanks for joining us and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. 
We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions. <laughs>